Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Jennifer. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's. Uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between the Gastric Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care. And the title of this program is Gastric Cancer Treatment Advances. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and a, a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now we have over 153 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have a number of international participants today from Canada, India, Lithuania, Nicaragua, Tunisia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo, medical oncologist, Head of Esophagastric, Gogastric Section, Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Kuhl will be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging in the context of COVID-19 resilience, current standard of care, including chemotherapy, new treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatment, precision medicine, predicting response to treatment, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koo. Thanks very much, Carolyn. It's always it's always a pleasure to, to, uh, to participate in these uh, conferences. So in the next 20 minutes, I have the uh, whirlwind obligation of, of, of covering uh, all of these diverse topics. So now I'll start about talking about um, uh, the basics of gastric cancer. So certainly in the U.S., you know, gastric cancer or stomach cancer is a pretty uncommon cancer. Uh, but around the world, stomach cancer actually is one of the most common cancers. It's particularly common um, in East Asia. It's common in parts of South America. It's also common in, um, in Eastern Europe. Um, um, and we think part of the reason why it's uncommon in the U.S. but common in other places uh, is because of an infection with a bacterium called H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori, uh, which increases the risk for both ulcers as well as stomach cancer. An H. pylori infection tends to be much more common um, in developing countries uh, than in developed countries, and it's more common in places where um, food is not refrigerated. Um, but at least in the U.S., it's, it, you know, it's, it's an uncommon cancer, and typically we see it in kind of major metropolitan cities uh, and in cities where there is a large immigrant population. So how is stomach cancer diagnosed? Um, in general, you know, the symptoms associated with stomach cancer are pretty nonspecific. Uh, it could mimic um, uh, reflux disease. It could mimic um, kind of food poisoning, uh, and it can be pretty insidious. I mean, people feel you know, that uh, their appetite is down or that, you know, they have some pain when they eat or they're a little bit nauseated. 
Uh, and it's not uncommon for these symptoms to last for a couple of months before the cancer itself is, is diagnosed. Uh, and unlike in places in the world where stomach cancer is very common and there is screening, uh, there is no early screening in the U.S. So most of the time, because patients present with symptoms like this, they will ultimately undergo uh, an endoscopy, uh, which is um, you know, critical for establishing a diagnosis of cancer within the stomach itself. Uh, endoscopy is a procedure in which someone is sedated, uh, and a um, tube with a camera goes into the stomach. Uh, it's able to evaluate uh, the esophagus and the stomach and part of the small intestines, and anything that looks abnormal is biopsied. And again, this is normally how the diagnosis is first made. Uh, in addition to an endoscopy, imaging to, tr to try and uh, figure the stage of the cancer to see whether it's spread or not uh, is, is important. So most patients will undergo a CAT scan. Uh, sometimes we'll also use um, a PET scan, um, but both of these tests will help us to detect whether the cancer has spread or not. Now, the, uh, I mean, we're now entering into our third year of, of COVID-19, and certainly in the beginning, um, a lot of people were postponing medical evaluations for symptoms. Um, I think at this point in time, you know, as we're dealing with a fifth wave and sixth wave, you know, which is waning in some parts of the country and, and, and still ongoing, um, I think it's safe to say that, you know, all healthcare systems uh, are very familiar with COVID-19, and there are, you know, lots of practices in place to keep both healthcare workers as well as patients safe. Uh, certainly, in addition to vaccines and boosters, you know, there's now widespread testing as well as treatments available. So certainly, my strong encouragement is that, you know, no one should delay um, uh, the evaluation of any symptoms because of concerns about COVID-19, um, which, you know, for the most part is, is well controlled throughout the U.S. So turning to the next topic, you know, the, the current standard of care um, for treatment really depends on the critical distinction of whether the cancer has spread or not. Certainly the hope is that the cancer has not spread, uh, in which case all treatments are given with the goal of curing the cancer and helping patients to live their normal lifespan. Uh, in the U.S., about half of patients are diagnosed with cancer that is not spread, and half of patients are unfortunately diagnosed with what we call a metastatic disease, but the cancer has spread to another organ. So turning, uh, focusing on the first situation, uh, in the event that the cancer has not spread, certainly the most important component of treatment is surgery. Surgery removes the tumor, and surgery is really the only treatment that has the potential to cure the cancer. Uh, whether additional treatment needs to be given in addition to surgery really depends on the stage of the cancer. Um, although it's generally uncommon, sometimes we do diagnose very early stage cancers in the U.S. If it's an early stage cancer, surgery is the only treatment that's required. Uh, for what we call middle stage cancers, uh, additional treatment other than surgery is clearly helpful. Uh, and, and that treatment normally involves chemotherapy, typically both before and after surgery. Uh, and in this case, the chemotherapy is designed to increase the chance of cure. Now, on the other hand, in, in the one half of patients who are diagnosed with metastatic disease, where the cancer has spread elsewhere, for example, to the liver, uh, to lymph nodes far away from the stomach, to the lining of the abdomen, uh, there is generally no role for surgery, in which case the main treatment is chemotherapy as well as newer treatments. And in that case, the goal of these treatments is to reduce symptoms from the cancer, to shrink the cancer on a scan, and to help patients live significantly longer than if they were to receive no treatment at all. Now, this ties into the next topic, which is new treatment approaches. So chemotherapy drugs are, have been used for decades. Uh, some, of these, some of the medications we use are more than 60 years old. Uh, but in the last 20 years, we've also been able to add 
newer treatments uh, to chemotherapy. And these treatments are either what we call targeted therapies. They are drugs uh, that block specific weaknesses or dependencies of the cancer cells. Or increasingly, we, use, uh, we add immunotherapy to chemotherapy. Um, immunotherapy drugs are drugs that activate and strengthen the immune system. So the immune system wakes up, recognizes, and attacks the cancer cells. So the choice of immunotherapy or targeted therapy very much depends on the idea of personalized medicine uh, in that we try to predict um, for each particular patient what their cancer is more likely to respond to. Now, I would say that for the purposes of this call and in 2022, there are currently three tests that we would perform in addition to proving or documenting that there is a stomach cancer that guides our treatment. And the first is that we test for a protein called HER2, HER number two, that's found in about 20 to 25% of stomach cancer cells. If HER2 is present, then we would add a medication called trastuzumab or Herceptin that blocks the HER2. The next test that we would check for is for a series of proteins called MMR proteins, mismatch repair proteins. About 4% of the time, one of these proteins is missing, and that actually makes the cancer cells exquisitely sensitive to immunotherapy. Uh, while 4% is a small number, this is a situation where immunotherapy may even have the potential to cure cancers that have metastasized, so knowing the MMR status is critical. Finally, related to that is, is another protein known as PDL1. Uh, it actually stands for uh, the odd term program death ligand 1. The PDL1 is a protein that's also expressed in a lot of stomach cancer cells, and when it's present, it means that the stomach cancer cells are more likely to respond to immunotherapy. So knowing what the PDL1 um, score is, knowing how much PDL1 protein is on the cancer cells, is also very important as we make decisions about whether there is a role to add immunotherapy to chemotherapy um, or not. Now, all of these advances that I've talked about, um, the addition of trastuzumab to HER2 positive cancers, uh, the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy, really is because of um, clinical trials that have been conducted in the last 10, 15 years. So, so in that regard, participating in clinical studies uh, is critical for two reasons. Uh, first and foremost, when a patient participates in a clinical study, um, we very much hope that, that they will derive benefit from the specific experimental approach. But at the same time, participating on a study also has altruistic benefits. The only way we can improve treatments for stomach cancer patients that come, um, you know, that, that, that come in, 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 the, in the years to follow is by studying new um, and innovative treatments. And actually, let me take a step back and, and talk about what I mean when I, when I discuss the clinical trial. So, so the treatments that I've discussed, um, chemotherapy and surgery uh, for a stomach cancer that's not spread, uh, chemotherapy and maybe immunotherapy uh, for a cancer that has spread, uh, these are considered what we call the standard of care, meaning that these are treatments that are approved by the FDA. They are paid for by insurance. Uh, there are large studies which show that these treatments work. So the next step, and, and the goal is always to try and build on these treatments, and we build on these treatments by doing something a little bit different. Either we add something new to the standard of care, or we replace something in the standard of care with something new, all with the idea and the hope that we will make things better. But because it's not a standard treatment, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we consider investigational and an experiment, and therefore it has to be studied uh, on the basis of a clinical trial. Uh, as I mentioned, clinical trial participation really is, is critical uh, for improving treatments 
But again, our hope is that every patient who participates on a clinical trial, she or he derives specific benefit uh, from the experimental treatment that they are that they are um, that they are receiving. Um, I will change tax and talk a little bit uh, now about um, managing side effects as well as symptom management. So I think one of the major challenges of stomach cancer, which is different than other cancers, is that even at the time of diagnosis, uh, patients already have symptoms. Again, in, indeed, it's, it's typically these symptoms that lead to the cancer being diagnosed in the first place. So these symptoms can include loss of appetite, it can, it can include nausea, uh, reflux symptoms, pain with eating. So it's not uncommon that at the time of diagnosis, most patients already have lost some weight. Hopefully, if the treatments work, uh, their, their weight will, will, their weight actually will go up um, uh, and they will actually feel better. Um, but at the same time, you know, these side effects may still exist and they may coexist with the side effects, um, uh, with the side effects of, of chemotherapy as well. So in that regard, it's really important that at the time of diagnosis and, and really at every point forward, that we do our best to maximize supportive medications to try to minimize side effects. Uh, so specifically, you know, we would make use of anti-nausea medications. Uh, we would make use of uh, reflux medications. Um, we would make use of uh, medications for diarrhea or constipation if they occur. And of course, we, we also use pain medications. Um, while I think everyone is, is, you know, reluctant in general to take narcotics, frequently narcotics are required, at least in the beginning, uh, to deal with cancer-type pain. And again, if treatments work, a lot of these symptoms will get better. Um, at the same time, you know, chemotherapy does have side effects. Uh, chemotherapy can cause tiredness. Chemotherapy can affect appetite. Uh, and we also have you know, various strategies to try and help with these symptoms. Uh, I'm certainly glad that um, Ms. Bearden will be talking about nutritional strategies later on. But really what's, what's critical is also helping to support nutrition from the get-go. Uh, because sometimes, something I see, unfortunately, all too commonly, that if someone, someone's nutritional status drops, uh, if they're not eating well, uh, if they lose weight, then you know, their energy level and their ability to tolerate chemotherapy also drops very quickly. So you know, all in all, in totality, you know, even as we start treatments for the cancer, uh, it's important that every step along the way to make sure that we you know, maximally treat symptoms related to the cancer, but also any symptoms that may de develop from the um, from, the, from the chemotherapy um, itself. So in that regard, you know, I think many practices and many academic institutions now have what we call a palliative care team or supportive care team, uh, and they work along with oncologists uh, in terms of treating the cancer to also help with symptom management. Um, a palliative care team can also be extremely helpful in terms of discussing goals of care, and in terms of providing you know, non-medical support uh, to deal with you know, what is clearly an, an extremely difficult um, uh, and challenging diagnosis, not only for a patient, but for their family members. So really that kind of brings me to the next topic, which is the importance of, of communicating with the healthcare team. So I, I think I've already stated that you know, what we really have to do at every step along the way is to try to identify and recognize every symptom and to try and treat it with supportive medications as much as possible so that you know, we, we, we support a patient's quality of life, and we support their ability to tolerate the treatment, and we support their ability to live their lives as normally as possible. So in this regard, I think you know, early communication is key. 
Uh, I've seen time and time again that a simple phone call to relay a symptom so that we can prescribe the medication or make a modification in terms of the treatment to make the symptom better uh, is, is, is infinitely preferable and, and works much better than waiting until that symptom gets to the point where it's really severe. And at that point, someone needs to come to the emergency room or even potentially be, be admitted. So really, it's, it's, it's very important, I think, at every step along the way uh, to, to let your healthcare team know uh, if something is different or if you're feeling, you know, if you're not feeling well in any way. Uh, I think, you know, many patients have, have the perspective that, oh, I, I don't want to bother the team or, oh, this is not a big deal. I can just try and get through it. Um, but certainly my, my strong advice on this call is that, you know, for anyone, you know, who is or has a family member dealing with this, um, as part of the healthcare, well, you know, the healthcare team, you know, as, as part of the healthcare team, we absolutely want to know uh, at the earliest sign possible uh, if you're not feeling well in any way. And in fact, this is particularly true uh, now that we're using immunotherapy medications. Um, immunotherapy medications can cause uh, inflammation side effects throughout the body. And we know that early recognition and early treatment really allows us to, you know, prevent a small problem from becoming a much bigger one. So I would always say always err on the side of caution. If you have a question or if something comes up, always let your healthcare team know. Um, and ultimately, that will allow us to help take care of you better. And also, it would just ultimately allow your quality of life to, to be that much better. Um, the last topic I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in, in, in the next five minutes is probably the one good thing that's come out of COVID-19 infection, uh, and that's really the increased use of telemedicine uh, throughout the U.S. So, you know, at this point in my clinic, it's not uncommon for one-third, maybe even one-half of visits to be telemedicine. Uh, certainly in the New York area, you know, we have patients from Long Island, Westchester, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, and it's tough for them to drive into Manhattan, and I'm sure that's true you know, in many other metropolitan areas, and certainly true um, in, in rural areas where sometimes you have to drive, you know, 30, 45 minutes or more for a doctor's visit. So, so you know, the really nice thing about telemedicine is that patients and their family members can speak with the healthcare team, um, you know, from the comfort and privacy of their home uh, without having to make a long trek in. Now, while there, that's clearly a bonus, um, there certainly are some things to keep in mind uh, with regards to um, with regards to scheduling uh, and actually attending the telemedicine appointment, um, uh, it sounds trivial, but sometimes uh, these are things that people forget. The first probably is to make sure that you have a good Wi-Fi connection. Uh, most telemedicine visits now happen on online platforms, a little bit like Zoom. Um, um, so so you know if you don't have a good Wi-Fi connection and if the signal keeps on dropping you know, then that probably ends up being a, a frustrating and, and kind of uninformative process for everyone. Um, so it's a testing to make sure that you have a Wi-Fi, you know, Wi-Fi signal that can handle both audio and video uh, is a really important thing to do. Uh, the other thing is that it's good to do a test run. Um, the first time that you're scheduled to have a telemedicine visit, uh, there's normally a link that you can click on, and that way you can make sure that, you know, whether it's your smartphone or tablet or your computer, uh, that the audio and video is set up and that, and that you can hear and you can be heard. Um, the last thing is clearly to be in a place that's relatively, um, that, that's relatively quiet. You know, as Carolyn said, one of the pitfalls of living in Manhattan is that, you know, it's pretty loud outside. Um, so it's good to, you know, be in a room or in a place 
that's relatively quiet and, and where you're not likely to be interrupted. Um, I, you know, occasionally do telemedicine visits with my patients and they're in a car and, and they're kind of pulled over somewhere. And, and that's, you know, that's okay, but that's not ideal. And certainly for your first visit, um, if it's with a team that you don't know very well, you definitely want to be in a place, you know, where you're, you know, where you're uh, not going to be, um, where you're not going to be interrupted. Um, clearly, as with any visit, I mean, just like with, a, with an in-person visit, uh, it's good to have a list of questions that you've prepared. Um, you know, normally I think we, we try to be thorough and we try to go over all the basics and we try to anticipate questions. But, but, but certainly, if there are specific questions that you have, um, you know, be sure to jot them down so that they are answered, um, you know, they are answered the, before, the, um, before the end of the visit. Um, it's also certainly good that at the end of the visit that you come away with an understanding of what the follow-up plan is. Uh, if a follow-up plan is to schedule treatment, if it's to schedule evaluation, um, um, you know, those are things that, you know, those are things that should be clearly established. Uh, so that just as with an in-person visit, uh, by the time you leave that visit, you have a good understanding of the disease and you have a good understanding of the treatment plan. So, you know, with that, I think I'm, I'm at 19 minutes, so I'm, I'm a little bit short, but I'll, uh, I'll yield back and happy to take questions at the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. That was really outstanding and just a, a stellar presentation and covering a lot of topics. and. Um, and doing them in a way that um, really, um, to those listening, seems seamless. But I know for you, um, I know this is part of what you do a lot all the day, all day long. But nevertheless, um, it was a wonderful um, opportunity for the uh, participants to learn a great deal, and you set the stage for the treatment really of uh, gastric cancer. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. Um, so, um, so thank you very much again. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and she's an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBake EVA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but also in your quality of life. Um, with a gastric cancer diagnosis, your diet might be modified um, initially during, you know, at diagnosis, and then the, the diet may change throughout your cancer treatment just to assist with managing any side effects that you experience and helping you um, obtain the nutrition and hydration that you need. So we've heard about some potential side effects from the treatment, but just to review things um, that you may experience, that you can experience, are things like decreased appetite, possibly a reflux or indigestion, filling full quickly, um, nausea, some patients have diarrhea, vomiting, and potentially weight loss are just a few. But each person's an individual, and each person's course through treatment is, um, is unique. And so it's very important that you communicate with your healthcare team about what you're experiencing. The role of a dietitian is to help you um, in meeting your nutrition goals, and it might be by modification of um, your diet. It may be um, giving recommendations on how to maximize what you are eating if your appetite's less than normal, um, really focusing on those high-calorie, high-protein options. That would be ideal in, in your specific situation. Um, there are some things that I always let patients know is, you know, 
weight loss during treatment is not ideal. What we want you to do is work to maintain your weight. Um, when you're going through treatment for cancer, if you're losing weight, oftentimes it can be lean muscle mass. And um, our lean muscle mass gives us the ability to, for you know, the endurance to do the things that we enjoy doing, helps us with breathing, chewing, swallowing, moving around. So it's really a lot about independence and just uh, maintaining that function. A lot of times patients think, oh, I have a few pounds to lose. I, I don't need to worry about it. And actually, we, we really are um, very focused on that as being part of um, your assessment. And so it's important to understand what your unique needs are. Because if weight loss occurs significantly, um, things like a delay in wound healing can be a result, um, maybe increased weakness and increased risk of falls, maybe a delay in your treatment can even happen. So again, it's very, very important that you know how to reach out to your healthcare team and communicate effectively um, what's going on, what you're experiencing so we can help you as quickly as possible. Now, um, for all the side effects that I mentioned, there are interventions, but they're going to be unique based on each patient. So, um, you know, that's where we get down and talking with you um, individually and really working up what's best for you. So if you do struggle with food by mouth, um, there might be, I mean, the eating food by mouth um, and getting in enough, there might be even a discussion about a feeding tube. This is possible um, for some patients. And I always tell patients to look at it as an assistive device. It's part of your treatment. Um, it's to help you get the nutrition and hydration in that you need. It's not something that's going to last forever, but it's, it's a tool. And so if this comes up in conversation, don't be... Um, you know, don't be closed off to the, you know, the discussion with the healthcare team. Um, understand what, what the purpose is and why you might need this if, if it's part of your plan. There are medications to help with side effects, and oftentimes a lot of the side effects that patients experience um, are things that are able to be managed with medications. Um, understanding how to take your medication is also very important. If you have a second set of ears at an uh, appointment, that's very helpful. Putting things on a calendar, um, recognizing what you take, when you take it, um, and then the, the guidelines around taking those medications are also very important. Oftentimes patients are given a lot of different medications for side effects, and it can be a little overwhelming, and you're not always getting um, the results that, that are you know, as optimally um, if you're not taking the medication um, as directed. Now, we've talked about eating and weight maintenance, but hydration is also very important, and it's actually um, essential. Um, and oftentimes dehydration can happen primarily because patients aren't eating what they normally are eating, and a lot of patients drink when they eat. And signs and symptoms, for example, of, of dehydration can actually be fatigue, headaches, feeling of dizziness. Um, it can actually amplify the feeling of nausea. And fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. So things like water, milk, sports drinks, um, juice. Um, a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. And treatments such as radiation, um, some therapies, um, can actually increase your need for fluid. And so, again, talking with your healthcare team about what your, your unique needs are. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team, and we're all here to help support you. Please reach out to them sooner rather than later. In that, I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was really just a wonderful presentation. 
and um, lots of wonderful information for our participants. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. There always are about nutrition. I think that's such an important area, um, as you've identified. And um, our next speaker um, is uh, Ms. Stacy Hirschman. And Ms. Hirschman is Executive Director, Gastric Cancer Foundation. And she'll be addressing the Gastric Cancer Foundation's free programs and services and also uh, let you know how to contact them. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to our partner organization um, um, and to Ms. Stacy Hirschman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, as always, the Gastric Cancer Foundation is really thrilled to partner with Cancer Care to offer current and reliable information through these workshops. Um, I have to say that each time we hold one of these sessions, I learn something important and something new and it's so encouraging to hear about new treatment options and new understandings of the disease, um, even since our last workshop. Um, you know, it reminds me that there is hope, and hope really is an essential part of this cancer journey. So we're happy to share that with you. Um, this workshop is for you who have joined us today, and we want to reserve time for questions. So I'm going to just take a couple of minutes to highlight um, some of the things offered by the Gastric Cancer Foundation. And I encourage you to visit our website, which is gastriccancer.org, to learn more about our full menu um, of programs and services. So first, let me just highlight for you that research is a big focus of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, and we've granted over $3 million to promising proje projects. Um, we know that research is the key to advances, and I want you to know that you can be a part of it in a number of ways. If you are a patient or close family member, please check out the Gastric Cancer Registry on, on our website and think about um, participating providing your story and possibly a tissue or saliva sample so we can continue to support the work of scientists who are working hard to find better and better diagnostics and treatments. Um, the contact information is on our website and the registry team can answer all of your questions and assist you. Um, second, um, and Dr. Tu talked about the importance of clinical trials, and just to repeat, clinical trials are an essential step in approving and making new treatments available. But we know that not all patients are well informed about the potential benefits in the, of incorporating trials into early treatment planning. And many trials, unfortunately, fail for lack of enrollment. Um, partly this is because the world of clinical trials is extremely confusing. So we offer a free, unbiased, no pressure, no obligation navigator service to help patients and families learn about open trials that may match with their individual diagnosis and disease state. And I really encourage you to check it out. Um, the phone number um, is on our website. Um, information can be powerful. So I hope that you will take a look. Um, our website, gastrocancer.org is a hub of lots of information and links. You can sign up for our e-newsletters and updates will arrive in your inbox. You are also invited to participate in our um, online community 
which is exclusively for patients and caregivers. You can join um, and ask questions, share information and experience with other people who understand the disease firsthand. Um, the link again is on our homepage. And last but not least, um, I'll draw your attention to our nutrition support series, which is called the Gesundheit Kitchen. It's a wonderful resource for patients and families who want tips on how to live and even enjoy eating after treatment. And most important, as Ms. Bearden was saying, to get the nutrition that is so important um, for healing and health. Um, Hans Rufert, who is a member of our board, but also a gastric cancer survivor and a professional chef, um, is joined by a licensed dietitian to present short video episodes. And I think you'll appreciate the information as well as Hans's special spirit, optimism, humor, and his approach um, to life um, after this diagnosis. Everything is on our website. So let me wrap up as I always do by simply saying, no one needs to face this diagnosis alone, and really nobody should try. So I invite you to be in touch with us um, and to access resources, um, and I wish you all the very best. Karen, oh, thank you, you. So much, oh, well, thank you so much, Oh, Thank you so much, Stacey. That was really, um, really superb and just a wonderful resource for those of you on the call who already know about the Gastric Cancer Foundation, but some of you may not. And so it's a wonderful resource. And the, um, the chef, um, uh, Hans, it's just a wonderful, um, uh, just a wonderful program and um, wonderful recipes and how you can prepare food and really uh, enjoy things. So I think, um, and he also, as Ms. Hirschman said, has a wonderful um, sense of um, humor and just makes it so much more manageable. And um, now I'm just going to say a few words about cancer cure, and I'm going to go right into the polling, I mean, right into the question and answers. And so um, please have your questions ready. Some of you have already posted questions, but for those of you who haven't, um, uh, Jennifer will explain to you how to do that in just a moment. So um, cancer care is a national organization, um, and uh, many people contact us by calling our HOPE line, 800-813-4673. Or, visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. So what do we do at Cancer Care? So we're primarily staffed by oncology social workers, about 40 of them, and they provide a host of services. They answer the hope line, so when someone calls, they're immediately connected to an oncology social worker and usually identify their question or concern, which is addressed, and then um, the the social worker asks if they'd like to hear about all the other services we offer, and they go through them. So I'm going to just do that briefly. We do ha have online support groups. Um, we do offer financial, practical, and co-payment assistance, which is very, very helpful to everybody. Um, we also um, offer case management. So if we do not have what you need, we will connect you virtually, we'll stay with you until you get your resource met. So it could have to do with food insecurity or payment of your mortgage or rent, all those kinds of issues which we don't help with, but which we will be able to connect you to resources both in your, perhaps in your city or regionally or nationally that will help you with that or all of the above. We do have a pet assistance program and so for those of you who have a cat or dog, 
and perhaps are too tired and don't have anyone to help you with either walking the dog or changing a litter box or purchasing food for your um, uh, cat or dog, we, will, we have a program that assists with that. We do offer these workshops, about oh, 75 of them per year, and we do also, also offer publications. And we do have uh, coping circles, which are a small groups, which address, um, led by a social worker, which address um, concerns that people may have, and they're very popular, so that's another thing that you might look out for. With that being said, we now are going to move right on to our questions. I'm going to ask Jennifer to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Jennifer? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press star, then two. Please identify yourself by first name and last initial only. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have um, actually a number of online questions that are terrific, so we'll start with them. Um, so a question for Dr. Koo um, from uh, one of our participants um, regarding metastatic gastrointestinal stromal tumor, latest advances after use of Guivac, Sutent, Divarga, and Quinlock, which have failed. We are readdressing Guivac, but are now searching for new treatments, clinical trials, or any options in the forecast of cancer research. If you could address this. Yeah, so unfortunately, I, I'm, yeah, unfortunately I'm, I'm not able to answer that question. So I think what the, um, what the question refers to is uh, a very rare kind of tumor known as a GIST tumor, which is actually distinct uh, from stomach cancer. In fact, it's distinct from most gastrointestinal cancers. Uh, but more so in Kettering, it's actually treated by our sarcoma physician. So I don't see GIST tumors and really cannot comment. And so, and I would recommend that you might want to contact the LifeRaft group, um, um, or there are many, a number of GIST organizations. Um, and we will, at the end of this program, provide a link to those resources as well, in addition to, of course, um, getting your, getting your, asking that same question of your treatment team, which I think, is, as Dr. Um, Ku has, has identified, would be the, your psychometry team treating um, um, GIST, that would be um, the best thing to do as well. Um, and I hope that helps. And, um, and our next question from one of our registrants is, um, so this is another question for Dr. Ku. Um, if a person has a mutation for lung cancer, does it mean that they have more of a chance to have the cancer develop to the stomach and other areas at the moment the patient is cancer-free? I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you repeat it again, please? Yes. Um, if a person has a mutation for lung cancer, does it mean that they have more of a chance to have the cancer develop to the stomach and other areas at the moment the patient is cancer-free? So, so, the, so I, I, I guess my interpretation is that this person has um, lung cancer and... and that cancer is currently, you know, in remission. And I think they're asking a separate question of whether that increases the risk for stomach cancer. Um, but certainly I'm not aware of any um, inherited predisposition 
for lung cancer. In other words, there are not inherited causes of lung cancer, as far as I know. Uh, lung cancer, you know, mostly occurs in in smokers. Uh, there are a small group of non-smokers who can who can develop lung cancer, but none of these, but you know, but in in all of these situations, it's not inherited. So so on the basis of that, um, there is not an inherited risk that someone would also develop stomach cancer. Now, we would have to take a little bit of a look at the risk factors. I mean, again, most people who develop lung cancer it's because of smoking. Smoking actually is not a very strong risk factor for stomach cancer. So, you know, in and of itself, uh, based on the way I understand the question, uh, I don't think that someone at, with lung cancer is, uh, is at, uh, you know, a particularly high risk for developing stomach cancer. And this is, all these are all very good questions also to ask your healthcare team as well. Thank you. Thanks. And another question for Dr. Ku. Um, is radiation considered a treatment option for gastric cancer? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't talk about radiation very much. I mean, I would say that, you know, um, so for, for patients with um, a, a localized stomach cancer that has not spread, um, there is increasingly less and less role for radiation. Um, uh, I, I would say that in general we would consider radiation only if someone has had surgery, you know, that's not of the highest quality. Uh, but for the most part, we really don't think about radiation very much for, for localized stomach cancer. Now, for the metastatic stomach cancer, where the cancer has spread, I would say that that comment is also generally true. You know, when the cancer has spread, we prefer to give what we call systemic treatments, so treatments that go throughout the bloodstream and go wherever the cancer is to, to shrink and control it. Uh, we generally prefer not to focus on radiation, which only works on the one spot that, it, that it's aimed at. It certainly works well on that one spot, um, but it wouldn't be effective in treating other areas. So I would say that for patients with metastatic stomach cancer, we think about radiation only if there is a very specific symptom uh, in one area that's causing a lot of problems. Unfortunately, sometimes, for example, you know, stomach cancers can, can bleed, uh, and if someone is having bleeding in the tumor, uh, bleeding in the stomach, um, we would sometimes think about doing radiation to that area to control the bleeding. Um, uh, I mean, there are other specific examples that I could cite, but you know, again, it's, radiation does not play a big role either in the localized setting uh, or in the metastatic setting where the, where the cancer cells have spread. Excellent, thank you. Um, and another question for you. Um, in the instance where um, patient had surgery for a complete blockage and his diagnosis is now signet ring cell adenocarcinoma with 18 slash 28 lymph node involvement. Is the treatment plan hindered because there was surgery? I'm sorry, I'm sorry Carolyn, could you repeat that again? I think I, I, I caught so something up on the blockage and something about surgery. Sure. Yeah. In the instance where the patient had surgery, for a complete blockage, yep. and his diagnosis yep. is now signet ring cell adenocarcinoma with 18 slash yeah. 28 lymph node involvement. Yeah. Is the treatment plan hindered because there was surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the you know, so so whether you know, I didn't get into this in detail, but I mentioned that the localized cancer is a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Um, you, you know, uh, it, it's certainly better than surgery alone. But what I didn't talk about is the timing. So, you know, in the U.S. and in Western Europe, we typically prefer to give chemotherapy both before as well as after surgery. Uh, but in East Asia, so in, in Japan, Korea, China, where stomach cancer is extremely common, 
uh, where actually there's a lot of expertise in treating stomach cancer, and where some of the outcomes with stomach cancer actually are very, very good. Um, there, the preference there actually is to operate first and then to give chemotherapy later. So it sounds like in this case, I mean, there was an urgency to operate in the sense that uh, something this person was um, had an obstruction. Um, you know, if the cancer is at the end of the stomach, it prevents food from from leaving the stomach to go into the small intestine. So you know, in that case, uh, if the patient had successful surgery, um, all of the cancer was removed. Um, then at this point, we absolutely would give chemotherapy in a preventative way to try to prevent the cancer from coming back. So you know, I wouldn't say you know that that um, that this person's um, outcome and prognosis is worsened by the fact that she or he had surgery first. I think as long as there was good quality surgery and everything was removed, uh, they should now absolutely receive preventative chemotherapy. But that would be a very appropriate sequence in many parts of the world. Excellent. Thank you. And another question is you, Dr. Ku. Besides HER2, are there other known targets like TDL1 and other part of the now standard test for gastric cancer and target for treatment? Again, does insurance pay for them? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, so HER2, I think, is the most established. I mean, HER2 is something we've been testing for for more than a decade. And as I talked about, you know, PDL1 is something that really, the presence of PDL1 really allows us to, to figure out whether immunotherapy is beneficial or not. So, um, and then the last thing just to mention again is, is uh, what are called mismatch repair proteins, uh, which also figure into whether immunotherapy uh, could have kind of an outsized, very dramatic and, and significant benefit. Now, beyond that, there actually are um, what we call, I mean, there are experimental targets. So. Uh, there's something called FGFR2, there's something called Claudin, uh, and again, all of that ties back into the idea that, you know, we have made, you know, slowly but surely, you know, improvements in the last five to ten years. Uh, participation in clinical studies is really critical for us to continue to make progress. And, you know, for tests that are not standard of care, um, a lot of that testing can be done uh, for patients who participate on a study. Um, but uh, you know, one additional test that, that I should have mentioned that is now also uh, considered standard and insurance will pay for is what we call next-generation sequencing. So uh, many, there are many companies throughout the U.S. that will test anywhere from four to 500 genes within the cancer cells to, again, try and identify kind of weaknesses or Achilles heels that we can target. Um, and, and these tests are, 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 through, are, through, these tests are called next-generation sequencing. And, and, you know, these are paid for by, by insurance. So, so NGS can also help to identify, you know, for example, uh, an FGFR2 amplification. And, and once that's identified, uh, then, you know, and, and, and oncologists, you know, or patients working with their oncologists and certainly working with support groups can try to identify um, clinical studies that may be appropriate for them. Excellent. And another question for you is, Nervor, a mob, a good immunotherapy for PDL1 negative and HER2 negative. I'm sorry, what's the, what's the drug? Um, N-I-V-O-R-U-M-A-B. Nivolumab. Nivolumab. Yeah, so nivolumab. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, so, so um, nivolumab um, um, has nothing to do with, with HER2. So whether a cancer cell has, HER2, has or does, does or does not have HER2, we would still consider using nivolumab. Nivolumab is an immunotherapy medication. Um, and as I briefly discussed, it's basically a medication that strengthens the immune system so that the immune system is able to 
you know, kind of attack and kill the cancer cells on its own. So, so that, that question comes back to, to the value of PDL1 as what we call a, a biomarker, meaning that when PDL1 is present on cancer cells and when it's present at very high levels, we think those cancer cells are more likely to respond to immunotherapy drugs like nivolumab. So, so in, in a you know, contemporary day application, if someone has a, cancer, has a tumor that has you know, a lot of PDL1 protein, we would add nivolumab to chemotherapy. Now, on the other hand, if, if, if the cancer cell does not have PDL1 protein, whether to add nivolumab to chemotherapy is a little bit more controversial. Um, the, the way the FDA approved it, um, nivolumab plus chemotherapy is an option for every patient, um, whether the cancer cells have PDL1 protein or not. But I think for many of us looking at the studies, when the cancer cell doesn't have the PDL1 protein, it's much less likely to benefit from adding nivolumab to chemo. So in my practice, I, I, I really don't uh, because, you know, these are medications that firstly are, are very expensive, even though insurance pays for them. But more importantly, you know, there are uncommon but potentially very serious side effects with immunotherapy. Um, so, so, you know, adding to me, adding the volumet to chemotherapy when the cancer cell does not have the pdl one protein, um, you know, that risk benefit ratio is, is not entirely favorable. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, and uh, this is a question for, again, for, um, for Dr. Koo. Um, I get terrible acid reflex now after my stomach removal. Does it go away in time? Um, what can I do to manage the pain? Yeah, so I, I think this is also will be a great question for, you know, Ms. Bearden to answer. I mean, I think it, it probably depends on how much of the stomach is removed. So if someone has had you know, their entire stomach removed. Um, um, so then taking, you know, antacids, you know, things like, um, you know, pantoprazole, omeprazole, to Prilosec, Protonix, that doesn't, that actually doesn't help because those medications work by suppressing acid in the stomach. If someone's had their entire stomach removed, there's, there's, there's no acid left. And the reflux symptoms they're experiencing actually is from bile. The bile from, you know, the gallbladder and the bile ducts can actually um, kind of come back up, you know, and, and, and cause that sensation. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, taking medications to kind of, you know, soothe the stomach medications like, like, uh, like sulcophate or caraphate um, uh, can be helpful. A lot of, you know, dietary changes can be helpful, uh, but a lot of it is also behavioral. So, um, you know, sleeping on a wedge pillow, not eating several hours before bedtime, you know, that can help to, 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 to reduce that reflux. Now, on the other hand, if, 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 um, if the surgery is, is only partial removal of the stomach, and certainly, I think, you know, focusing on antacid medications, uh, focusing on medications that help the stomach to kind of move a little bit more efficiently so that food is pushed on, uh, those are treatments that can help reduce uh, acid reflux. But, but hopefully, you know, in either situation, uh, this is something that should improve um, the further out, you know, that particular person is from surgery. Excellent. And Ms. Bearden, do you want to comment on this as well? Sure, absolutely. So there are some diet um, changes you can you can make um, that may help with it, but a lot of the recommendations um, that have been provided are, are are you know exactly what you know I've seen work for a lot of patients. But some things um, to do with diet wise is you know eat slowly, don't eat quickly, chew your food well. Um, and don't eat to the point to where you're overly full just until you're satisfied. Um, trying to save your fluids for 
in between mealtimes rather than drinking a lot at a mealtime can also be helpful. Um, and then not lying down or reclining um, for at least two to three hours after completing your meal is also very helpful. Um, getting up and moving around a little bit after a meal can be um, also beneficial. And being sure not to wear anything that's very tight, you know, look at more comfortable or loose clothing, um, you know, um, so that you're not having anything constricting um, in place. There are some things that you that are in our diet that can potentially aggravate reflux, such as alcohol, coffee, tea, um, caffeinated beverages, spearmint, peppermint, um, chocolate bothers some patients more than others. But high fat and greasy foods um, can actually really aggravate indigestion. And foods that are really spicy um, with a lot of, you know, peppers and things like that. And some patients have issues with tomato-based dishes and um, citrusy food. So really just focusing on um, the leaner meats, you know, your lower fat meats, um, such as your fish, you know, your white poultry, um, lean beef, um, and then, of course, allowing your, you know, system to not be overly full when you're eating, getting up and moving around as you're able, and saving um, the main part of your hydration for in between your meals rather than um, during your meals. Those can all be very helpful. Excellent. Thank you. This is outstanding. I have to I want to thank all of our speakers and I want to thank all of our participants. This has been a wonderful, wonderful call. Phenomenal. And actually although we've done this program before, the questions have been fantastic and our speaker because addressing them has been really wonderful. So I want to thank you. And I do want to address the fact that we do have many more questions in queue, so I actually do want to um, acknowledge what to do for those people. Um, so again, I want to thank our speakers and our participants. But um, if the participants could hang on for a minute, because I want them to know that if you asked a question, if you have a question yet to ask, and if you're thinking of a question, please take your question to your healthcare team, because your healthcare team knows you the best, and they can best answer your questions. So maybe see the questions that you asked today or that you heard today as a role play to take it back to your treating healthcare team. And what you have learned today is that all your questions are terrific, so they have to be asked of your healthcare team, and they need to be asked as often as possible until you get the answers that you need. That's really very important. And um, most importantly, I would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with gastric cancer, any type of cancer. In terms of gastric cancer, you have the Gastric Cancer Foundation, you have Cancer Care, and you all will be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation um, tomorrow, and that evaluation will give you a, it's an evaluation of the program, but it also will give you all sorts of links that we mentioned during the program today, websites, links, information that we think will be useful to you. So look out for that um, Survey Monkey because it will have inf additional information that you'll be able to utilize as well. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.